Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to Starfest 2020, the St. Albert Readers Festival. Yet again, I'm Peter Midgley, the festival director and your host for the evening. On behalf of Starfest, thank you yet again for joining us. Before we introduce our guests, I do want to acknowledge that we are broadcasting from Treaty 6 territory, traditional lands of First Nations and Métis people. I also would like to remind everyone that you can purchase the books online at both Edmonton's independent bookstores, Audrey's Books and Glass Bookshop. We have provided links on the YouTube feed, so please follow the links, buy the books. Your, our authors will thank you. After the introductions, our guests will speak for about 40 minutes. During that time, please post your comments in the comment features. I will gather them and I will relay them to our guests at the end of the evening in our short Q&A session. Uh, do remember, if you are going to comment on YouTube, you have to log in. Tonight's guests, Jacqueline Baker and Marina Endicott, are all-time uh, Starfest favourites. They were scheduled to speak to us the night in fact, that COVID hit and everything shut down. So it is lovely to have them back at last, finally here. Our interviewer, Jacqueline Baker, is the author of The Broken Hours and other novels and books. She teaches creative writing at McEwen University in Edmonton. Jackie, welcome, welcome back to the studio. Thank you, Peter. Our star for the evening, Marina Endicott, grew up in Nova Scotia and Toronto, and has lived in England, Saskatoon, and Alberta, and is now back in Saskatoon. She splits her time between that and Edmonton, or so was the intention before COVID. She teaches online at the moment for McEwen University. Her book, The Difference, won the 2020 Howard O'Hagan Award for Fiction. Marina, welcome back among friends. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Lovely to be here, Peter. All right, so before I hand over, just remember, please, people, post your comments in the comments feature, and we will get them to you, to them in the Q&A session. Enjoy your evening. Thank you, Peter. Hello, Marina. Hello, Jackie. It's so nice to see you. It's so nice to see you. You feel very far away, but this is lovely. Did, did you know that this, that our event was scheduled for the night that COVID descended um i did because we just moved so um my plan was to drive back and to be in starfest with you and uh i was really looking forward to that and then we i couldn't drive back because everything was down so you moved to a new city you're in saskatoon you um put a novel into the world all during covid yeah how, yeah. how was it I, you know, I think a lot of writers are secretly almost glad about COVID in a weird way because it relieves us of any responsibility to be um, out in the world or um, at all extroverted. And so it's in some ways we're living our ideal life where we're forced to stay inside and spend most of our time at our desks and on the computer. So in a way, I don't really mind it. And also, I love the eeriness of the city, the quiet city and the roads being silent and I've flown a few times. I've had to fly to Toronto to look after my parents, and and I, I've never had such wonderful flights. And the emptiness of the airport is really weirdly lovely. Uh, but on the other hand, I miss you, and I miss my friends everywhere, and I and I miss company. We miss company. We do miss company. But I was thinking the same thing that you know there were many times, uh, especially early on when I was uh, first publishing, that public appearances made me so anxious that yeah. I thought, oh. Only I could be at home writing my books and never have to make mistakes <laughs> in my pajamas. <laughs> and here we are. Here we are doing that very thing. I, I've I've put my pants mostly away. I'm wearing, you know, I have a couple of pairs of basically sweatpants, and I think I, I'm in tune with the rest of the world right now. I don't think anybody is wearing our proper pants anymore. Right. Yes. Well, I think that that's certainly one of the uh, benefits of COVID. But um, how has it been actually putting a new book out in? To this world. Well, I was lucky enough that the 
Canadian edition of, of the book came out last fall. So I actually had a book tour and uh, did see people and walk around the earth, which was wonderful. But I it came out in the States in June and I was really looking forward to that. Um, and quite excited about the various things that were planned for me in New York and Philadelphia. And so um, all that, of course, was canceled. Not only you can't go anywhere, but also you can't get into the States unless you have some reason for it. Um, so I have done some online things, but it's very strange to have a book go out into a gigantic field of crickets. And, and then, um, you know, on the other hand, I can't be blamed for anything, really. It's... Uh, it's impossible to do, to do anything. So so we'll just have to let it swim on the sea for a while. Yes, that's a lovely way to put it. Um, this book has been a long time in the making and I know we've talked about this before, but could you just talk a little bit about the genesis of it? I think it's a lovely story where it all came from. Oh, well, came from many different places, but um, as Peter said, I grew up in Nova Scotia. I was actually born in BC. Um, and we moved to Nova Scotia when I was seven. And um, my name, Marina, means the sea. And I was tremendously excited to move to the ocean. Um, and I, I had a wonderful time in Yarmouth in many ways, although not in others. But I had a wonderful piano teacher who um, was a pillar of the town, a, a dragon lady, a ferocious old woman lived alone with her dog and her two pianos and her house absolutely full of artifacts from the sea because her father had been a sea captain. And she had, as she told us often, been brought up on a clipper ship. And the way to get out of trouble if you hadn't practiced was to encourage Miss Ladd to tell stories of her time at sea. So I spent quite a lot of time uh, engaging her in the sea stories. And uh, I loved those stories. And, um, you know, even just to look at the narwhal's tusk over her piano. And uh, she was an enormously powerful influence for me. She was a, um, an intelligent, strong woman um, creating a life for herself alone. And I really respected her for that. But she was also kind of a monster. Uh, <laughs> and so when Google came in in the 90s, you know, you'd Google yourself and there'd be two two hits and then you'd Google everybody else you knew. And so I Googled Miss Ladd in, in the 90s, living in Cochrane, Alberta. And what came up was uh, just the speaker, the, uh, the icon of the speaker with the little lines and her voice coming out of the computer, her cracked old Nova Scotia voice that I know, I knew then, I knew better than my own voice, telling the story of her mother's honeymoon voyage to the South Seas. And although I'd heard millions of stories from her, I'd never heard this one. And she told the story of how her mother went uh, on the morning light, her father's ship, around to Tonga and into Micronesia. And they stopped at an island to tr for some, uh, some of the people who lived there to come and trade with them. And the people who came to the ship had a five-year-old boy with them. And she said, my mother took a shine to him. She thought he was so sweet, and so she bought him for four pounds of tobacco. And the shock of hearing that was profound. It was um, a horrible shock to hear her talking about the purchase of that boy as if it was a parrot that they found on their travels. She went on to tell what happened to the boy in, in, a, in a little bit of detail, not really very much. Um, it, it, he was quite clever. Her mother taught him English a little bit of Latin, he learned a little Chinese from the cook. Um, so there were a few details. Uh, one of the details was that he didn't know how to do, use the stairs. He uh, he wanted to go down them on his hands and feet, uh, his hands and knees, and he had to be taught, she said. He knew nothing. And that obliviousness to the reality of that child just really struck me at that moment in a painful, painful way, because it was so little removed from me. That was my piano teacher's mother who did that. And the idea that I was linked so closely to her was really, really stopped me in my tracks. And I didn't think I could possibly have dared to write about it though, because it was too, you know, not even maybe my story to tell. But then I was lucky enough to go to Tonga and New Zealand uh, when I won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. 
Um, and I spent 10 days in Tonga talking and giving workshops and, and, and teaching little kids, all of whom were just as bright and as animated and as smart as that little boy must have been. And um, it began to seem to me like a form of cowardice not to write it, that I was avoiding writing it because it was going to be too difficult and I was using the excuse of it not being my story when, in fact, it was, it is my story that white people went all over the world and thought they knew better. And so I decided that it was time to investigate that story and figure out how your person could come to think that they knew better and how they might be able to change their mind. Yeah, I think it's stunning. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you talked about that. The fact that we often think about it's going on over there when in fact it's, it's right here. It's, so close to us and it's just a you know a few clicks away on uh, google and you're like oh my god there it is um and i've never heard a better provenance for a book ever i think it's i think it's just as a, an absolutely heartbreaking and um and somehow also wonderful story you know that there all of these connections across time and place is is really wonderful i wonder i mean you've done a lot of research for this book and and for all of your books, actually, do you ever <laughs> feel like I never want to do another heavily researched book ever again? <laughs> Are you saying this while well, in the well, middle of a heavily researched book yourself? <laughs> asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I agree with you. Never again. And, you know, I worked so hard on the research for my vaudeville book and I never want to hear the word vaudeville again because you do all the research to create the world that you need to walk around in, to immerse yourself in that culture, to know crazy things like how, you know, how the 72 names of sales and um, you, you need all that information while you're writing the book, but then you've written the book and it's finished and you don't need that information anymore. Uh, but people keep on giving me vaudeville books, you know, still, and and also now, uh, things about the sea. Um, I do, I do, I do wonder if if I'll ever do another historical book. But but in fact, there's one percolating in the back of my mind right now. So I suspect that I will continue to go back and forth from the present day to the historical stuff. You know, it's not uh, it's it's not that I'm so fascinated with historical fiction. It's just that you see that this time is like our time, that really the shame that I felt on listening to the story of this woman taking this child away was so familiar, painfully familiar, because we have that shame all the time of the way that children on residential schools were, were treated. And that is present day. That's not, you know, some historical distant thing. And I think that's how you get um, sucked into doing another historical novel. Yeah. Right. Right. And human nature doesn't change all that much through the ages, in fact. I would that it did. But the details of life sure do. And it's that. And so do you find when you're writing, how do you manage it? So I know that you do a lot of research in advance, but you know when you're writing and you inevitably get to the moment where you think, what did they call that back then? Did they have that back then? And because we're composing on laptops for the moment, I mean, I think you write on, mm -hmm. a, on a computer. Oh, yeah. um, uh, the 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 rabbit hole, the endless rabbit hole, dark tunnel of research that mm -hmm. is the justifiable procrastination of actually finishing your novel is just to click away. But you know what? It's always been like that. You could always run over to the library and figure out how long it took them to get from Timbuktu to London in 1862 and exactly what kind of vehicles they took. Um, it's like there's two kinds of research. There's the first... Um, kind of world creation, uh, understanding of the culture, that kind of immersing yourself in knowledge of the period. Um, and and then you leap into to writing and then you'd figure out what you need to know. And uh, Fred Stenson, the wonderful Alberta writer, uh, gave me this piece of advice a long time ago to not let the writing get too far ahead of the research, you know, rewriting and researching at the same time and I think that was it's very acute it's really what we need to do but it's almost impossible too because you don't even know what you need to know until you're in the middle of figuring out how to get to Timbuktu um I think I went off topic because I think what you were saying is how do you stop yourself from going down the rabbit hole and I don't know 
deadlines is the only way that I stop myself because it's so much more fun in a certain way to figure out exactly how they tied their bustles and exactly what kind of stitching they used than it is to get on and solve the problem of, you know, your second right. chapter. So my question also is then when you're composing and you're zipping along with your story and you come to that moment where you think, oh, how did they tie their bustles then? Do, what do you do in that moment? Do you stop what you're writing, do a quick Google search, come back with the information that you need, or how do you manage it? Do you press on with the writing and leave the details for later? I think it's different. I think it depends on whether I need to know whether they could get to Truro, Nova Scotia, or I'm just, they just I can just say they went. Right. Um, one of the things, here's a, here was a real research thing that happened to me. When I was writer-in-residence at McEwen, I don't actually teach at McEwen, I teach at University of Alberta, but I was writer-in-residence at McEwen when I, when I broke the back of this book and actually started to write it, which I'm so grateful to McEwen for. Um, and I was right down the hall from you at that point. And you probably remember the shrieks that came out of my office when I was researching wind patterns and uh, prevailing winds and currents. And um, I realized suddenly as I was sitting there that the entire book was screwed. That all this time I'd been thinking that what they did was they went from Nova Scotia around Cape Horn and up into the South Pacific because that's what it looks like on the map. And I, the whole book was planned for that. And then I suddenly realized that no, they didn't do that. They couldn't do it. No trade ship would ever do that because they'd die because it's so dangerous to go around the horn from, from east to west. So what they always do is they go around the globe the other way with the prevailing trade winds and they go under, uh, under South Africa, under Australia, and then up into the South Pacific. And I thought, how could I have been so stupid and missed this mass massive thing and my book is ruined? And, you know, for two weeks, I just sat in my office and cried because I had screwed my book. I remember and, that. I'd sometimes knock and bring you a coffee. And, and I'd just be sitting there crying more. Yeah, weeping. Yeah. And, you know, it actually reduced itself down to like one sentence. There's one sentence where some that one of the passengers says, oh, I thought we would go around the horn and the captain laughs and says, oh, no, we don't do that. <laughs> and it was fine. It was fine. Fine. So I think most research questions can be answered with they went they went there they got there. Yeah. So you should keep writing the book if it's if it's you that is the friend you're asking for. It's not me. No, I swear it isn't me at all. I'm fine. I'm totally no. fine. <laughs> I think it's a tricky thing though. I mean, I I don't know um how often you've written pieces set in uh, the contemporary moment. It's a completely different experience. It's it's nothing like writing a nothing story like, novel. No. But then, you know, here's the other thing, though. You should stop once in a while because then you get those incredible gifts of research that you would never have thought of or known, that you couldn't have known, except that you were so deeply immersed right. in the research. And not only that, but the little gems that you come across, uh, completely unlooked for, yeah. sometimes exactly. change the course of the story that you're telling. And it can be a very small thing that you did not know before and the, the knowing of it, you can't unknow for the story and it changes the course of the events. But usually that's yeah. good. It's usually good. <laughs> Can I get you to read a little bit now? Um, oh, and then we'll talk a bit more. Of course. I thought I would read to you um, from fairly early on in the book, but not the beginning. This is when they've gone to Eleuthera. So Kay, is 11, almost 12, and her sister Thea is almost 20 years older, her half-sister. Uh, they've stopped at the in, in the Bahamas, at the island of Eleuthera, and um, while there, Thea has suffered a miscarriage. Thea lay all day in Mrs. Judd's guest chamber, still bleeding. The world was made of blood. Still more was coming. They said it would go on for another day or so, like the worst of one's womanly time. Solid clots, like portions of fresh liver ready for the pan, sliding smoothly out as if it was an ordinary month, no pain to speak of anymore. Mrs. Judd said one must not repine. God's will, she said. She said she and the canon had been disappointed time out of mind, four times that she knew of. 
She left Thea alone so she could think again, but Thea did not want to think. Francis came and sat on the end of the remade bed, clean looking now so he could be spared her pain. He stroked his hand along her leg. Never mind, he said, never mind, my dear. And she nodded to relieve him, but of course they minded. Nothing was said to Kay that morning or ever. Rhoda said Thea was still too talk and for too sick to talk and for the girls not to be at her and continued going to and fro with bowls and basins, a great bustle of washing in the hut past the kitchen and a bower of sheets and cloths hung swaying and bleaching in the sun. Kay stayed with Susanna and Sally, the little girls in the back kitchen and Francis did not come. Kay thought, not knowing what to think, that Thea might have had an apoplexy like their father, but survived it. They would say if she was dead, wouldn't they? Not tuberculosis. Kay had seen many people die of that, and it took a long time before they wasted into death. She had not died from the baby since there was no baby crying or demanding. Kay would have looked after it if Thea died, as Thea had looked after her when her mother died. Lying in the little white bed that evening, Kay reasoned it out from the sadness in the house and the noise and now the silence. The baby itself must have died, as a calf will sometimes die and be pulled dead out of its mother. On the third day, able to carry herself without showing weakness, Thea went into the empty church in the afternoon and knelt to pray, but found the usual words sticking in her throat. After a time, the curate, Mr. Brimner, appeared at the pew's end. He bowed minutely in his over-formal way. I, I fear Canon Judd has ridden out over the island, but if it would help you to have spiritual counsel or simply company, I am at your disposal. Thea moved her stiff mouth to courtesy and said she was very well, thank you. He nodded. This morning, I found myself refreshed by the words of a collect in the early baptismal service, the 1549, you know, which I, I thought might be of use to you. Of course, all stillborn children are welcomed into the sight of God. There can be no question otherwise, but still the language here. He waited as if for permission and at her silence, dipped his head and took a card from his vest pocket. Receive them, O Lord, as thou hast promised by thy well-beloved son, saying, ask and you shall have, seek and you shall find. Mr. Brimner looked up again as if to be certain she was attending and allowing him to continue. Receiving no stop from her, he did so, saying, ask and you shall have, seek and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Give now unto us that ask, let us that seek find. Open thy gate unto us that knock, that this infant may enjoy the everlasting benediction of thy heavenly washing, and may come to the eternal kingdom which thou hast promised by Christ our Lord, O men. At heavenly washing, Thea felt her eyes open and tears flood briefly out. She had a fresh hanky, but could not find it in the unfamiliar pockets of the skirt Mrs. Judd had lent her. Mr. Brimner waved a large white one at her nose, and she caught it and turned away for a moment. Only a few tears quietly shed, like a deposit on her grief. It was not true release. It was not that she had forgiven God. Walking down the gravel path beside the church, Kay heard someone weeping. She stood on tiptoe to look in the window, but it was too high. Instead, she slipped into the vestry porch, silent and bare feet, softened, shadowy against the white walls in her white dress, no longer spotless, but softened by sun and salt water. Thea was praying and crying, a hanky pressed to her face. It must be hard to have a baby inside you and find that the baby had died. And perhaps Francis would be angry. Mr. Brimner looked up and saw Kay standing there, and he smiled again at her as he had the first day, face creasing into an excess of kindness. He waved a hand to her as to a friend, an equal. She nodded back and went out on cat feet. There she was still, wandering in the graveyard when he came out. She saw him casting about for a glimpse of her. 
He started over the grass, stepping over graves, just as if a person was not rotted away to white sticks under each one. Miss Kay, he said, when near enough. Mr. Brimner, she said in turn, since he kept waiting for her to speak. I have been, well, do you know, Captain Grant was so kind as to suggest that I might take passage to Tonga on the morning light. And I wish to say, <clears throat> I have been accustomed to earn my keep. Your brother says your schooling has been neglected. He thought we might study together as we go to lessen the burden for your sister and perhaps increase your skill in algebra. At her grimace, he said, hmm, or, or we could study the English poets, Spencer, Don, Ma Milton. I am myself now engaged on a work of, uh, but no, I see you are unmoved by poesy. The Latin tongue then, I could benefit from polishing my catullus. Kay looked at him. Her father's Hebrew Bible, thick and backwards, the blackest ink on the thinnest paper, lay in the bottom of her trunk. Could you teach me Hebrew? He smiled again, lesserly without all the creases. Sadly, I am no hand at Hebrew, but what would you think of ancient Greek? Her heart leapt. Cyrus and Xerxes, the 300, I, I believe I saw a first Greek book on Canon Judd's shelves. We might, we might persuade him to part with it. Kay said, would I learn the other letters? The Greek alphabet, well, necessarily. My father did not have time to teach me yet, and then he died. Well then, I believe it is a bargain. Mr. Brimner put out his hand and Kay took it. His smile, as usual, broke his head in two, this time the neck jutting out to add emphasis to his pleasure. Kay took her hand back, but she was pleased. I'm gonna skip ahead to them on the boat a little bit later as they get back off on their way to Tonga this time. Mr. Brimner came aboard like a sailor, jumping handily over the lip at the top of an end of the gangplank, all courteous enthusiasm for such a ship-shaped vessel. He nodded to Kay, but did not linger on deck, perhaps having been long enough at Eleuthera. He only clapped his hands together and went below to oversee the stowage of his trunks. She watched him go down the stairs, thin legs trotting cleverly below his portly body. The beauty of the filling sails filled her eyes. They were putting on sail now, white acres lifting and lifting into the giddy air. Not unhappy, Kay gripped the rail as the morning light swayed on a strong wave of moving sea and caught the wind to sweep around into the darker Atlantic blue, the true deep ocean. At the wheelhouse, Francis stood absorbed in charts with Mr. Wright roaring an occasional command to hearten the crew after their three-day rest. Every shout rang in Kay's ears because it must hurt Thea's. Kay did not want to look at her in case it hurt her to be observed in this condition. Her face looked foreign. She could not truly be thinner in only three days, but the pale skin was drawn tight over her forehead and her eyes and were blue shadowed. It would be worse if Thea had died and Kay had to sail on alone with Francis forever, whom she hardly knew. Mr. Brimner trotted back up from below where Hubbard had been settling him in his cabin. He smacked his linen-jacketed chest with both hands and searched a moment in his pockets and then pulled out a pair of dark glass spectacles, spectacles and exhibited them to Kay. Guard the eyes from strain. He pulled each rounded crook carefully over his great ear tops. My physician's strict orders, he told her solemnly. A crackpot. She was stuck with him now. Thea tilted the brim of her straw hat to see him better. Did you have them specially made? She asked. In Oxford, he answered. Ground and smoked to my eyes idiosyncrasy. They answer very well, but some things shine strangely through them. He looked about him as if to prove it. Rainbows and glories, the sun itself, some colours, reds, greens, glow with a ferocious beauty that tempts the eye. Gazing out from his portable darkness, he looked like that villainous kidnapper, blind Mr. Mole of Thumbelina in Kay's child, childhood book of stories. It was strange to have another person now in the world of the ship. I think I'll stop there. <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I remember uh, the first time I heard you read this um, from this book, it was, do you remember it was at McEwen many years ago? Yeah. Um, and you read the opening. I did. And it was just as beautiful. I mean, that was an early draft. And yet I'm sitting listening to you read it. I was listening to you read it then. And it was this 
it felt like this polished, fully formed, lyrical, beautiful thing. It's like, does it just appear on the page that way for you? You don't even have to work at it. I I actually just voices speak to me and it comes right through. <laughs> no, <laughs> but you know, Gertrude Story was the first writer in residence I ever went to visit at the library in Saskatoon a hundred years ago. And she actually told me, I write what the voices tell me to write. I made a bargain with them. I said I would write for 10 years for them and I'm just writing down what they say. And then I'm going to stop. And then she did stop. But no, I don't have voices telling me stuff. Do you have voices telling you what to write? Um, I have voices telling me to do a lot of things. It's rarely to do with my writing. Quit <laughs> writing. What are you doing? You're insane. <laughs> I Let's talk about that. We, we were talking about that earlier, about the way we set out to write this thing. And we have a pretty good idea what this thing will be. Maybe we can't see it all the way to the end, but we think we have a good idea of what it's going to be. And somewhere in the putting down of it, it becomes a thing we had not expected. Do you find that's true for you? Was it true for the difference? It really was, yeah. I always think, as you said, that I know where it's going. I, I often start a book with a sort of a little slideshow in my mind of the end. So I, for example, in my book, Good to a Fault, I absolutely knew that it was going to end in a picnic on the river. But I didn't know who would be there. I just could see figures moving around in the smoke by the river. Um, with, I could see the pear and the orange that they were eating. Uh, and so I, I start with some vision of the end, yeah. But no, I don't know. It almost seems like it's necessary for some transformation to take place in order for the book to become itself. I don't know if you find that too, but I, I, I start out with my piddly little brain with one idea, and it's a smallish idea because I'm not really very smart. And then the book itself comes to life, and the book dictates a much better book than I could have imagined or that I could have dreamed up that I would write. It, the book itself um, fulfills itself in a way. So in this book, for example, I fully intended it to be just Thea and she would adopt the boy and it would be just the two of them. But I needed another eye. I needed a child to be able to look at that situation clearly because um, Thea has completely fully agrees with the idea of benevolence and that it's possible to do people good by trying to make them more like you. And I needed somebody else who had a different point of view, literally, a different vision or a different view on what's happening and could look at what is the transaction of the child being taken away from his home and see it differently and maybe see it more clearly. And so I needed Kay. And then, honestly, I don't know where Mr. Brimner came from. <laughs> I needed her to keep on going to school and Thea was too tired. And then he was he was just there at the church in the Bahamas. And, and then I liked him. And so he came along. Good Mr. Brimner. As I've said, he's, he's my favorite character in the novel. I think he's yeah, so wonderful. But he just wandered into your story really kind of fully formed, didn't you? Well, absolutely. And I felt as if I knew him right away, which I, I think that that, I know that that happens to you because I've seen it in your books. I've certainly seen it uh, in the, in the, the uh, broken hours where, I mean, every character in there is, I believe that they w existed before you started writing about them. What is that? I mean, do you speculate about this? What is this? What is this thing that happens when we start out with this puny little, in my case, certainly, this puny little story that I have in mind? It's a very small story. I think it's marvelous in my head, but it's a very small story, ultimately. And from some other grace comes this much bigger, much richer thing. Have you speculated about what that is? Do you ever think about it? I, I actually have speculated about it. I've been forced to because I teach a lot, you know, as, of course, you teach even more. And... 
it happens in the class. You give them a little stupid little piddly exercise, and by the end of the hour, a whole bunch of people exist. A whole bunch of lives have been created by by the strange alchemy of just imagining and writing something down about that imagining. And then and I'm still thinking about student characters that happened 20 years ago that I still can't. There was a wonderful, um, well, I won't go on because I could go on for hours talking about student characters that still live in my mind and, and stories that I wrote uh, when I was a, a kid that I still, they're still, they're alive somehow still. I know that you do these, um, that you do in-class exercises with your students as well. So you give them a prompt um, yeah. and then you let them write for it. I timed writing, maybe five, ten minutes. Yeah. And sometimes I'll get them to read what they've just written. And honest to God, there are times where I think, how did you do that? These are, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds just arrived here trying to write, and they're writing these astonishing short pieces in five minutes. Yeah. It's it's so lovely. It's what keeps us teaching, I think, is what keeps us yeah. allows you to keep on doing that. Um, action, which although thank God buys the groceries, it does take away from your own the time that your books want. Um, but it it also feeds the time that your books want because you see every day enacted that creation that um, that links to something that is bigger and more and more beautiful and better than you could write yourself, and that certainly better than these eighteen year olds can write, and yet they write it. They write it. Yep. I was talking to my students today about that, um, the other idea about uh, that you can't ever get anything 100% right. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly look back at uh, things I've published recently or long ago, and there are many things that I would change. So two questions about that. One, how do you know when to stop? How do you know when you've, you've done enough and it's really time now to turn your attention elsewhere to move on to something else? And then second, can you think of things that you would go back and change about previous books, even even the difference, even though that's still very close? I think it can always be better. You know, they talk about painting and, and knowing when to stop in a painting and that if you keep painting, you overpaint it, you go too far. I don't really think that pertains to fiction. It might to poetry, I don't know. But in fiction, I, I think you can always make it a little bit better. You can always see something that could be more elegantly phrased or or raw or that you've where you've been just you've just fudged it a little you just faked it a bit and you can clean that up um so the more drafts i can do the happier i am and when i know it's finished is when i my deadline is passed and i have to send it in basically uh and i find it now quite difficult to write without a deadline because um well because i have so many other things that i should be doing but um, the other part of that was, um, would I change anything? And you know, I don't want to go back and I don't want to read them anymore because they're they're. It's not that they're dead to me, but they're they're not changeable now. And uh, and so it it's it's a, a a bit difficult to be forced to go back if you have to look for something or some character you want, somebody wants something. The, the best thing though, is if you happen upon a book, like in a used bookstore and you just open it up and you read a bit and you think, well, who the heck wrote that? I don't remember that. And that's lovely. When that's it's lovely. Yeah, it's lovely when it's, when it's away from you enough that you can just, it has its own life and you, you can let it go. And you think that's pretty good. And you often think that's because you never think that you know really never you think oh, Lord. oh i will i will revel in being a novelist and i'm a novelist and i can write novels and you and geez louise the times you think that your work is good are like 12 minutes per book where yeah. you think oh this afternoon i actually wrote something good but here's the good thing yeah and that is that the stuff, you know, when I, I, I think one afternoon, oh, I'm a rare genius, and that is very fine. <laughs> it came from above, and it was inspired. <laughs> and then the stuff that you wrote because you had to get them to chapter two, later on, there's no difference between the two. They're both the same. They're both the same. 
Yeah, thanks. And cer certainly you and I have exchanged texts in which we say, well, that's it. Uh, there's no point in going on. Uh, I've obviously lost any ability I had to write and uh, just yeah. tell me to stop. Put me out of my misery and tell me to stop. But that's so true, though, because we don't, you know, you'd think you would get better and better at this. And in fact, we have probably got a little, uh, maybe we've gotten faster at certain things, but you don't get to write the same book over. You can't, like a surgeon, do 17 appendectomies. You have to write a new freaking book that you don't know how to write. Right. I often think, too, that if I had to go back and write one of those books again, I don't think I could do it. <laughs> right? I don't think I could do it now the way I did it then. No, no, that things true. change. Things change. And we are in a huge time of change now. So I know you finished the book before the global situation became what it was. Um, I'm in the middle of one. I know. How has it changed? Oh, I don't even know how to ask it. How has the global situation made you rethink how you approach stories? What a difficult question, because I don't yet know the answer. Um, I'm sure that it has changed everything. I don't, I, I'm just really a slow thinker, you know, secretly. It's not so much that I'm stupid. It's just that it takes me so long to think. And I only really figure out what I think about things about 20 years later. So I don't yet know how this has changed, but everybody and everything has changed. But I'm actually really dreading reading the 700,000 books that will come out of, out of COVID. About pandemics? Yeah, I don't want to I'm read working, I'm working on one right now. Well, I'll read yours, but only because... Thank you. That's very good of you. I would rather read a book of yours that was set, say, in the 19th century. Um, <laughs> if only someone would write that book. <laughs> I think I think so too. I think that there, of course, there are going to be many books that come out of this, but I don't think we've stared at it long enough. You know, I think um, was it Flannery O'Connor who said that writing requires a certain degree of stupidity that allows you to just sit and stare. At things. Yeah. And I think that's it's not it's not understanding necessarily, but it's a kind of uh, you get to see the thing for what it is, maybe. Um, and I'm I need to stare at a thing for a long. I need to stare at the long at the page a long time before I can put words on it. <laughs> I think that's my best thing is staring. Staring. I'm a good starer, but you know what it means is that I get up really early in the morning. I'm usually writing before six o'clock. Yeah. And I well, I say writing, but what I'm doing is staring. And I just read over it and read over it and stare at it and think this is shit. And then I read some more and I read over it. And then about 10 30 or 11 at night, I might be able to write some stuff. That's that's a that's a very inefficient way to work. It's also how I work. Maybe we all work, work yeah. that way. But the thing is, and the thing that people don't always say is that it is shit. <laughs> we we do write that. The stuff that we put down, it's shitty writing. That's right. Um, it it doesn't come out fully formed. It doesn't come out polished. It doesn't. I mean, we talk with our students about this all the time. That in fact, the good writing doesn't happen with the first draft or even the second draft necessarily. It's way down the road when we have time, A, to see what it is we're actually doing, uh, because we don't know that at the time, and then B, to take a look at our sentences and the way we're, you know, the way we're crafting our story. You know, Hemingway used to talk about the main writer's tool being the bullshit detector. And I used to think that, I sort of assumed that meant the bullshit detector towards everybody else. And now I understand it's your own that he's saying you have to detect that. You have to detect every, every place that you're just, a little bit less than honest, or you're just a little lazy, or you know there's a better way to do it, but it's going to be too hard, or there's some conflict between people that you just don't want to get into, so you're just going to let one of them leave instead, and the other one goes, Charlotte, Charlotte, as they leave. And instead, you need to go back, bring Charlotte back into this room, and actually deal Get with back it. in here. <laughs> Sit down, Charlotte. <laughs> do you read reviews? Oh, you know, yes and no. I I used to read reviews, but I used to read everything. And I don't, and, and the thing is, I'll tell you what cured me of reading reviews was Goodreads. Um, <laughs> and like, I don't read them because, I, because they're just going to get me depressed. There's no, even the good ones. Uh, even the good ones. I don't remember <laughs> the good ones. I remember every word of the bad ones. 
Um, I don't remember the good ones except, oh, there was some sort of wishy-washy, it was great thing, you know. But they're, but uh, no, do you read them? Goodreads cured me of reading reviews. The very same experience. I, I don't read them anymore. And it's um it's funny that you mentioned that because I was just talking with some colleagues at, at, um, at McEwen today uh, who were talking about putting a book into the world and how scary that feels because then people can say whatever they want about it. And I'm like, I've got something I can read to you uh, from Goodreads for my first novel. And it's just a dreadful, dreadful, like it could not be worse review. And I think that's the last review I read. I thought this isn't going to help me write books. Um, it's not going to help me do anything better in my craft. And so even if they're good, I think, I don't know. You know, I really think uh, Hannah Arendt <laughs> said that when she's working, she doesn't think about the reaction or the reviews because she's working. And then the, the interviewer said, and well, what, what about when it's when you're finished? And she said, well, then it's finished. I wouldn't. Why would I read about it then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the one cheerful thing is if you if you get really sad about that, you can look up Chekhov on Goodreads. <laughs> this was boring. I don't know why he had to go on for so long. Seemed slow. <laughs> so you can do it a little bit. Right, doing better than checking. Amazon reviews are always a good <laughs> Margaret Atwood, she seems full of herself. <laughs> Alice Monroe, who does she think she is? <laughs> Yeah, it's no good. It's no good. Don't read your reviews. So I know that we're running out of time. Oh, no. And I, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but I want to have time for my rapid fire 10. Oh, no. You. Oh, man. Yes. You, you said you were going to do this. <laughs> Are you willing? I'm willing. Uh, okay. Do I have to be entirely? Okay, never mind. I'm just, go, go uh, ahead. Ask. ask no, what, what was the, what was the, do you have to what? Do you have to be to totally honest? If you see me crossing my eyes, you'll know I'm not honest. I'm looking closely. Yeah, there they are. So don't think too long okay. about your answers. Just I'm, a quick answer. Okay. You can elaborate if you, okay. if you want to elaborate. Um, uh, I can't wait. This is exciting. It is, isn't it? Are you a little bit worried? I'm terrified. I've know you, I know you've had some bad questions in um, stage interviews in the past. I won't be asking those. <laughs> Ready? Yeah. But now I'm terrified. <laughs> we'll start off easy. Last TV show you binged. Oh, a Stranger Things. I really enjoyed it. That surprises me. Me too. You don't like scary things. I hate scary things. But my daughter kept yelling, it's not scary. It's, it's not, not scary. scary. I know. But I was pretty scared because I have a very, That's very, my sister is already on tippy toes. Yeah. You got a low bar for scary. Book character you identify with? Oh, Anne Elliot in Persuasion, who uh, doesn't get married till she's very old. <laughs> was me. <laughs> I don't think you were very old. I was so old. I was so old. How old were you? When I got married, I was 40. 40. 42. I was 42. But we'd been together for quite a while. Okay. Class in school, you were very bad at. Um, sorry, class in school? I actually failed home ec. So did I. Well, I didn't fail. She gave me a C plus. Anyway, this oh, is a story for that. another time. Yeah. What? Tell, tell me why. What happened? It was the, it was the petty point. I could. I just couldn't finish the petty point. Uh, you know, come on. We have lives. What is? What is petty point? Needle point, but very small. Gosh, you were doing that in home ec. It was crazy. It was Nova Scotia. Okay. You didn't finish it. I didn't finish it, and I and I didn't finish the wastebasket made out of discarded Christmas cards either, because we didn't keep Christmas cards in my family. And you were supposed to sew them together, and it was it was pointless. Just make me cook some more. I'll cook as much as you want, but don't make me oh, do you're that stupid crap. You're an excellent cook. I'm an excellent cook. Yeah. Uh, it was sewing that undid me in yeah. home. Something you always have in your bag. <laughs> well, you think I'm going to say lipstick. No, I don't. 
Uh, you know, I asked, this is so funny because I asked my daughter, Rachel, who's a fabric designer, um, what, we were talking about this the other day and we were talking about felting and how, you know, you could uh, do some mending on wool by felting on socks. And uh, and her nana said, uh, her grandmother said, well, but where would we get a felting needle? And Rachel looked kind of shamefaced and she said, well, I always have one in my bag. <laughs> she actually carries felting needles in her wallet. Oh, a little darling. Yeah, I know. Uh, what I always have in my bag, I always have Rescue Remedy, that box flower essence stuff that you take with an eyedropper that's supposed to calm you down. I don't know whether it works, but it's in my bag. Okay. Have you taken some tonight? No, I forgot. Okay. Why did you think I would say lipstick, Marina? I have an addiction and you know it, and it's not really nice to bring it up on national television. <laughs> so unkind of me. I have a serious, serious lipstick problem. I just love the stuff. And I'm it's always a it's not a that's not a problem. Well, that's one thing that COVID has actually cured me of because you can't go try them on now. So I don't know when I last bought a lipstick. Jackie, my life has gone to shards and ashes. Where's the lipstick? You showed me. If this isn't revealing too much, you showed me an app once where you can, there's an actual app, right? You can, you can try the lipstick on. So it's on Chanel, the Chanel site. Chanel app. The, the yeah. Try on, and it's very good. If you if you like trying on lipstick, you just put it and it puts fake lips on you. It's very funny. You know, it was not very long after I met you when. Um, I was putting on some lipstick and you asked me what it was and then you peered at me and said, well, that's the same color as your lips. You're, you're going to have to come out with me and I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you. I don't think I said that. I say, I think I said, that's Burt Bees. That doesn't count. <laughs> that's lip balm. <laughs> anyway, it's been all downhill from there, as you know. I've led you astray. What did you just put on? Uh, it was actually Bobby Brown. I like it quite a lot. It's um, it's called Lip Tint Extra Lip Tint, and this one is uh, Bare Peach. I think it's quite a, an effective uh, online Zoom lipstick. I also have Milk sitting here, which is like seriously, I have a problem. I'm not going to show you all the other ones I have. Marina is not getting any advertising kickback dollars for her mentions of any products this no. evening. Unfortunately, it would be nice if you did. That would be great. That's a good way for writers to make a little money. Maybe Peter could bring uh, Bobby Brown in to see the the podcast episode. Nicely done. Okay, we're getting the five minutes heads up, so I'm going to press on. Oh, good. Uh, something people often get wrong about you. Oh, well... I think that what I think about that would be different from what either is real or what anybody else would think. Um, I, I, I think I think I always have to introduce myself to people. I don't think people know me right away. I think I always have to kind of translate myself to them. Right. Yeah. Get that. Okay. Acting role you wish you had played. Oh, well, I played many that I wished I played, but I never got to play. Oh, hmm, let's think of a good one. I would have liked to do like Rosalind in um, As You Like It, or one of those kind of wonderful, brave girl boys. Uh, and nobody ever would cast me as that because of the bosom. You know, I always was playing the, the sister or the mother. or And so I became a director instead because I was getting boring parts. Right. And then a writer. So... And then all be for the good. Which is much more fun, the most fun. Is it? Well, that would be another conversation, actually. I'd like to hear your comparison um, between a solo art and a collaborative art, really. Let me, let me add it. Really. must be enormous. We don't have the eight hours that it will take tonight. We'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. uh, a book you wish you had written. Oh, well, Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson. Is that the one with the short story? Um... Car crash while hitchhiking? Yes. Yes, I was just talking about that with students the other day. And man, that is a terrifying story and the most, probably the best story in the world. But also anything by George Saunders, I wish I'd written. I wish I could write any of those things. Or 
Chekhov or any of Penelope Fitzgerald, well, you know my list. Yeah. A lot, a lot of books I wish I'd written. So many lovely books. Something you are very bad at. I'm, a, I'm really not a good housekeeper. I'm just not. I, I don't have the gift. I'm a good cook, but uh, my, you know, my sister and my mother walk through a room and just kind of twitch things and everything looks great. Everything looks better. They have that gift of bringing um, grace and peacefulness to a room and I lack it. All I can do is just clean. And even then I'm not that great at that. So I'm, I'm sad about it because I like living in a orderly and beautiful space and I quite often have to just make do with clean. Something you're grateful for right now. I'm grateful for being able to live with the people that I like the best in the world. That's a good thing. Last one. Fill in the blank. Bravery is... Hmm. Jackie Baker. <laughs> I refuse to accept that answer. Bravery is whoever needs it comes up with it. Well, I wish I had ended on your answer to the house cleaning one because you gave me such a lovely segue because you were talking about how hard it is for you to um, put order in a room and make things look graceful and lovely. And as you were talking, I'm thinking, but that's what you do with your writing, Marina. You are such a beautiful writer. Um, the the book, um, the difference, and 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 your other books, it's it's as if the structure grows out of your story so organically that you can't see that it's there. You can't see the bones of the thing. And yet when you step back and look at it, you see the perfect order uh, that's there um, that is overlaid with this beauty and grace and light. And, oh, it's just, it's a lovely book. We're going to talk more about that at the end, I hope. But um, well, you, can't, you couldn't have said anything that would make me happier than that. Well, it's a lovely, lovely book. Thank you. It's a huge honor coming from you. Thank you so much for allowing me to ask you questions my little rapid fire questions at the end. The rapid fire ones were terrifying, but they were good, except for the housekeeping one. Oh, well. But then I housekeep my books, of course. There it is. Of course, that's what it is. I think I don't think it's a gift. You don't think it's a gift? No, I do think that um, people have gifts in different areas. And hmm. that that gift of being able to make a house beautiful is a gift. I don't think it's something yeah. that you like learn out of a book. I think you just it's it's an expression of your personhood and I don't have that expression. But I have other expressions. No, you're quite right. And there there's art in it as well. It is a kind of art, you know, making a house beautiful yeah. without any guidance from someone else. It's yeah. And there's no way to learn that. You just have to work it out for yourself. Do we have okay, so let's bring Peter in and he can uh, take it from here. I <laughs> I, I feel like such an evil person pulling you out of this conversation because I'm having so much fun listening to the two of you. So, but that is my role here. So uh, a couple of questions here. I think we were all too absorbed in this conversation. It's a, uh, Corey asks, says, you're a big fan of libraries. Have your research habits changed with the advent of the internet? Oh, yes. Um, I am a huge fan of libraries and in fact, you know, cut my teeth in libraries when I was very young and uh, I, I used to have a recurring a fantasy when I was uh, a kid in Yarmouth of, of I would plot to get myself locked in the library on Saturday evening and then I'd have Sunday and maybe a holiday Monday in the library by myself to just read whatever I wanted. Um, but the wonderful thing about the internet is that you can do it sitting still, and so you can do it faster. And uh, with the vaudeville book, I really learned the appalling universality of strangeness, that whatever you can dream up, whatever you're wondering about, some person has devoted their life to putting it all online. And you can, if you're um, an inventive searcher, you can find anything now in the internet. It's just so useful to have that uh, 
the galaxy of information right at our fingertips. And one of the things that I fear about you know, COVID, but everything is that we'll somehow allow that to deteriorate and we'll lose this portal to everything. In some way, we'll, we'll, we'll somehow let it fracture and lose it or by government surveillance or something. There's a, so there was a news article yesterday that, that, that uh, Google has decided that it will give um, search histories to the police. <laughs> <laughs> writers across the world were going oh my god <laughs> in fact it's the, it's the plot of strong poison by dorothy l sayers where a murder mystery writer is uh is accused of, of murder because she was researching poisons for her book yeah not good uh I have another question here. The saying the seafaring sections are so vivid. How does a prairie person write so evocatively about the sea? It's so funny. I'm so glad that you call me a prairie person, but in my own mind, I'm entirely an ocean person because I moved to Nova Scotia when I was seven and I just sort of took on that identity as this is my real place, this is my real home. And so um so really the question should be: how can a person who considers herself to be an ocean person get so many things wrong or not know enough. Um, the, the thing is that, that the sea lore is just such a vast topic. I, I did things like I joined the, um, the uh, Merchant Navy Brotherhood in the, United, in, in, in the United Kingdom in order to go into their archives. And so I still get regular birthday greetings from the merchant seamen of the United States now. Uh, <laughs> And even so, after spending 12 years researching um, various maritime things, I, I know so little of what there is to be known, and I'm so embarrassed about it. But luckily, I had Kay and Thea as my excuse, because they didn't know either what was happening. You know, they can watch the, the crew running around, taking sail up and bringing sail down, and, and, and their ignorance saved me from a lot of embarrassment. But I really enjoyed the research. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. What you just said is that we can often use our characters as a kind of buffer or filter for what we don't know. But I have to say, you know, yes, you did your research, but you wrote about the sea in that book as if you had spent your life sailing the seven seas. Honestly, like I've never read another book. Um, that really made me feel when I was reading it as if I was at sea. You know, Joseph I just Conrad, really, no, like this. Well, is the maybe Joseph Conrad. I've, I thought about that actually because I love Conrad and I read all of him thinking about this. And you're right, he doesn't really put a whole lot in. And I think it's because he knew it so well that he didn't have to. So he, you know, he could leave out details because he, he just knew them. Whereas I had to look them up and had to figure them out. But I also really love it. I love it. And so it was It was a, a pleasure. One of the pleasures of the book was being at sea. That's wonderful. Now, the final question here is, um, you, you spoke about characters that just appeared and walked into the book. Now, which characters took a turn and went, wow, I didn't think you were going to go in that direction? <laughs> um, well, um, I don't think I've ever had a character flounce off and say, I'm not going to be in this book. Um, <laughs> but at least say, I'm going to be someone else that, that, than you imagined. Yeah, I'd rather be in Jackie Baker's book, actually. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have had uh, a story just not work a novel just not work and uh, that's a very sad thing it, and it never feels you, you the guilt never goes away that you didn't manage to solve it and fix it and um find the way that the book could become itself and i i still i'm still guilty about one book set in fernie bc in the 60s um called the beard contest that i really probably will someday turn into a short story I'm not good at letting things go. I don't know about you, Jackie, but do you go back to old things and um Oh, I can carry a book and a grudge for a long time. Yep. <laughs> Endlessly, really. 
I'm not so good with grudges because I'm very forgetful. And I just sort of kind of forget what we were fighting for. But that saved my marriage many a time. Well, oh. I I hate to bring this to a close, but I have to. It's been an absolute delight being in, in this conversation. Thank you both. Uh, Jackie, you're such a generous interviewer. Yet once more, it's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for coming tonight. And Marina, yeah, Marina, you're just, you're among friends here and thank you for visiting us again. It's a delight, thorough, thorough I'm pleasure to really have sorry you. That it's not really in person because your, your St. Albert audience is one of the best in the country and I always really oh. my visits there. And I'll, But we'll come back. Jackie and I'll just come when we yeah. can. Please do. Let's do it. Please do. Always welcome. Um, well, as we close out the evening's events, thank you both again to, the, to our guests tonight. Uh, I do want to remind you, you can buy both authors' books at the Edmonton's independent bookstores, Audrey's Books and Glass Bookshops. The links are posted online. Please go ahead, buy them. And then finally, as we go, uh, thank you to our crew here in the background doing the tech work. Without them, this show really, really cannot happen. Um, so thank you so much for that part. Do also take a moment to stop at the end of our show. Look at our list of sponsors. Thank you to them as well. And visit Starfest online at www.starfest.ca. Look at the other fabulous authors we have coming up in the next few days. Register for events. We'd love to have you back. So from me, until next time, good night.